Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, and we're going to pick up from where we left off this morning. We're looking at the life of Moses. Verses 24 through 26 are dealing with Moses' choice to be with the people of God rather than remain an Egyptian. The life of Moses continues in verse 27 by uh, looking at the Exodus. And then verse 28 is the Passover. And so this morning we looked at his decision to be with the people of God rather than to be with the Egyptians. And beginning in verse 24 we read, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses is held before the Hebrews and before us today even as an example to encourage us in our walk of faith. And as we looked at this morning, the reason this particular instance is brought up is is in part because of the possible persecution the Hebrews were facing, and it would be advantageous for them to remain silent of their Christianity and maybe even disassociate with fellow Christians. Because being in association with fellow Christians could cause one harm. And so the writer of the Hebrews brings up uh, Moses before us and says, look what Moses had. He didn't have something to gain. He'd already gained it all. He was Pharaoh's daughter. He was wealthy. He was well-educated. He had all of these great things. But rather, he chose to be with God's people. And when we think of that, we, we note, rightfully so, this is extraordinary. We might even say this is supernatural. This is outside of our, our experience of what we would see in humanity. But with that in mind, that it is extraordinary and supernatural, that leads us to the reality that we have to recognize this is regeneration and the fruit of regeneration. In other words, what we see of Moses is what we should say should be for all Christians. And that's where it has to hit us. As we think about what are the marks of regeneration, what are the the fruits of of the faith, Well, we see it here. One is a desire to be with God's people. That there is now a desire in us that was not previously there. This is something that can bring us harm. This is something that can cause suffering. This is something that makes us stand apart in a society that is pluralistic, in a society that denies the Lord. In fact, what we see and we have to recognize is that your association with Christ cannot be separated from your association with God's people. 
Once we have disassociated ourselves from God's people for whatever the cause, for the Hebrews it would have been persecution, we have disassociated with Christ himself. We cannot separate those two things. Christ and Christ's people are one and the same. That we are in union with Christ and so to disassociate with God's people. So that tells us then that there is a desire that is not according to the flesh, but is according to the Spirit to be with those that would count themselves as followers of Christ. It's interesting, Peter, in chapter 4, deals with this reality from a, a similar perspective. In verse 1, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With this, they are surprised when you, who's the you, it's a group of people, it's Christians, likely those Christians there in Rome. He says, when you, a group of people, no longer join these things, you're set apart, you're now in unity with one another, and what is the result of this? He says, you do not only join them in the same flood of debauchery, <clears throat> and they malign you. They malign you for your association with other Christians and your disassociation from the world. So the world does not like us to disassociate with it because when we do, we in essence <clears throat> have put a judgment upon the world. Uh, you, you come into church on a Sunday giving up your day of rest at home or whatever leisurely activity you would like to do, but rather come to worship the living God with a group of people that are also gathering to worship the living God that had the same choices is a judgment upon those that refuse it, whether they know it or not. We have to recognize that and that the world will see it. And so this idea of relationships and this idea of associating with others, we have to see it is actually a part of the Christian life, the desire to be with God's people. And the relational aspect as, as a means of perseverance, as a means of encouragement, is a theme that runs throughout Hebrews. In fact, we have seen these themes many times in the past, but let me just bring it to our attention again. In chapter 3, we read, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart lending you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. In other words, you are, as a people of God, are to be living in such a way in community with one another that there is mutual encouragement so that you persevere in a society that may not like you. 
I have to say that that should be good motivation for us to desire one another. And in a church where there is, where, where there is that casting off of someone, what have we just done? We have just done what the world is supposed to do to them. And so actually, it's a means of our perseverance. This is why later on, this very familiar passage, we're told in chapter 10, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another. That is the fellowship of saints to love and good works. How do we do that? Well, by not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, here it is again, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so the idea of relationship as a means of perseverance in persecution, and Moses as the example, is littered throughout not only the scriptures, but it's also as a, as a littered throughout the book of Hebrews itself. And so Moses chose God's people over the woman that raised him. Let that sink in for a moment. Woman that nurtured him. The woman that cared for him. The woman that, that carried him around. Because when he became of an age where he was no longer nursing, he went to the daughter of Pharaoh. His memories of his mother would not have been his birth mother. His mother would have been the daughter of Pharaoh. All the way until he's in his 40s, he would have viewed her this way, with an affection as his mother. And so he chooses God's people even over her. You know, this morning we looked at the riches, the royalty, and all of that, but put that twist on it now that Scripture makes clear as emphasizing that this was his adopted mother that raised him. Because in Christ, we desire Christ over every other human relationship, right? That's what Christ teaches. But how is that expressed in the text? How it's expressed in the text isn't necessarily saying he desired to be with Christ, it's not what it says. It says choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. His choice in Christ and his relationship to Christ was expressed then, here according to the text, with the people of God. Well, what does that teach us about the nature of, of the relationship that we are to have with one another in the church? And we have to ask this question... And I said this this morning and say it again. It's a convicting question. Is, is, is our priority God's people? And, and let's just bring it closer to home. Does, does our priority be the people that, that God has placed us with in covenant community? That's, that's the question. Under the old covenant, David says, as for the saints in the lands, that's a, those that are set apart, those that are regenerate. This isn't those that, that were um, just bore the outer symbol. This is those that had a circumcised heart. He says, as for the saints in the lands, they are the excellent ones in whom 
is all my delight. That is his desire is to be with the saints. And so we should not see this as a command, but rather we need to see this as the result of a changed heart. So if we say and confess Christ that we are born again, that means we are confessing we have a changed heart, which means then we should say, and we should say that these things, though not perfect, are manifest in my own life, that I desire to be with God's people. That's the reality of a changed heart. That's what Scripture places it at. So if we read this as just simply, do this, love God's people more, that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is, if you have a changed heart, and if you are in Christ, you love God's people. It's a result of a changed heart. So is it a a delight to be with God's people? Is it a delight to be with God's people? Is that our desire to fellowship with God's people? Obviously, we struggle with it because we have all of Paul's letters where he talks about unity over and over and over again. So we know it's a struggle, and so we recognize we are in the process of sanctification, that we are sinful people, that we get on one another's nerves, that we are not perfect, and our relationships reflect the imperfection of our own life. However, what does Scripture teach us about the nature of relationships? What does it teach us? Let me just... Consider the life of Moses since Moses is before us as the example. If you just turn over to Exodus chapter 2 for a moment, because I think this is instructive for us. You remember the story, and we're going to read it again, when Moses chooses the people of God and chooses the reproach of Christ, which he considers greater than the treasures of Egypt. In Exodus 2, verses 11 through 15. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now pause right there. You don't read the rest of the verses. Just ask yourself this question. How are the Egyptian or how are the Hebrews going to view Moses now? You're thinking in, in your head, here's our Savior. Here's the man that's going to deliver us. He has chosen us over the Egyptians. Welcome home, Moses. But that's not what we read, is it? It says, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Moses isn't welcomed with open arms. They don't say, the man that God has raised up to deliver us is here. Now, we all know that this is in God's providence and timing to go and train Moses 
and to prepare him because he's going to become a shepherd and he has to deal with obstinate sheep. So he's going to then come back and deal with obstinate people and God is preparing him. And it takes 40 years to get through the seminary of obstinate people. But he's not welcomed with open arms, is he? This is the reality that the Christian life, in reality, is is difficult in this relational way. You're not always going to be welcomed as you would like to be welcomed. You're not going to, even when you are trying to do what God has called you to do. In fact, although we would say that what Moses did here was probably wrong, he had the right heart towards God. He has chosen God's people. He's trying to be the the deliverer for God's people, and yet they don't welcome him. You may do the right thing. You might do it in the wrong way. It doesn't mean we're going to get open arms from the people of God. In fact, they may even turn on us. But there's no reason to abandon the people of God because of that. Just consider the rest of Moses' story, how it continues. After he has got his training in dealing with obstinate people, you see in chapter 4, as Moses is going to return to Egypt... Verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. Now Aaron is Moses' brother. And so God goes beforehand and tells Aaron of this situation that Moses is coming, go and meet him. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs. Notice that. Did the signs in the sight of the people and the people believed them. So so you see a couple of things. They have heard God's word. They have seen the signs that confirm the messenger. That's always the purpose of signs. They confirm the messenger. And it says, well, the people have faith. And when they heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed down their heads and they worshiped. They respond to God's revelation of himself that he has come to rescue them according to his promise to Abraham. Well, what happens when Moses starts to implement the very plan that God gave him to implement? Do the people bear with patience with Moses and say, we're, we know that this didn't turn out the first time like it was supposed to, but we're going to have patience with you, Moses. We know that God is working through you. He has given his word. You confirmed it with signs. And we welcome you. And we're, we're thankful that you chose us over the riches you could right now be experiencing. Well, you get to chapter 5, and this is how they, they respond to Moses. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh, and his servants have put a sword in their hands to kill us. That's their response to Moses. Not only do they first reject him, and he runs, God prepares his heart, And he comes back now with a prepared heart. And what do they do when Pharaoh doesn't let them go? 
they reject him. They say, get out of here. You're trying to kill us. You're trying to make our lives difficult. And Moses, let's be honest with Moses. Moses is perplexed by this. This is why Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Maybe sometimes relationally, when you try to do the right thing in a relationship, and you're choosing to do the right thing, and you're choosing to be with God's people, and you get that sort of response, you might feel that same way. Lord, I, I tried to do what was right here. You know, the reality is, in our throwaway culture, what happened to Moses the first time, what happens to Moses the second time, would have resulted in a person leaving the church and bad-mouthing it at the next place they go to if they go to the next place. They, 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 would have, they just would have completely turned on Moses and left. Now we can see continual examples of Moses dealing with difficult people. And you see their obstinance continually. But what do we see of Moses? What I think is remarkable about Moses is Moses is in so many ways a, a clear picture, um, a type of Christ. But whereas Moses gets angry, we know Christ never sinfully got angry. Whereas Moses was not perfect, we know Christ was perfect. But nonetheless, we know the type is not the same as the anti-type, but points to it. So when a people rejects Moses that he has chosen to be with because God has given him the desire of his heart, his desires are imputed by God. Our desires are imputed to us by God. What does Moses do for an obstinate people that reject him? What does he do for those people that he gave it up all up for? Well, in chapter 33 of Exodus, we see it. In verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. How does Moses respond to the people of God? In many ways, when you look at Moses, he is completely dedicated to the people of God. And he intercedes for the very people that rejected him. The very people that said, you're just making our lives more difficult. The people that said, Moses, you may have delivered us from slavery but back in Egypt, we had all of these rich spices and food that we could eat freely. What does Moses do for those very people that would have crucified him if God had permitted it? He prays for them where he says this, consider too that this nation is your people. Moses is on his knees before the Lord 
praying for the people of God. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Notice what he says, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? What a powerful prayer that he intercedes for the people of God. Because that's what the people of God do for one another. Even when the people of God are obstinate, even when the people of God bug us, even when the people of God sin against us, the people of God lift up one another to God. Again, we have to see this is what should be of a regenerate person, is that they intercede. They intercede for one another. We recognize that there are difficult people, do we not? We recognize that it's difficult to do this. Again, that's why the scriptures over and over again tell us to do these things. So practically, how do we then enjoy difficult people? I didn't say, how do we put up with difficult people? I didn't say, how do we deal with difficult people? I asked, how do we then enjoy difficult people? The first thing always has to start with the gospel that changes us by God's grace, that we were enemies with God, but God loved us in spite of the fact that we hated him. And he called us out of darkness to walk in his marvelous light purely by his own grace and his electing love. We had nothing to do with it. When I look at another Christian and you look at another Christian, I, I, and it's difficult at times, we have to say, I was not worthy of God's grace, and he called me to be in union with this person. And that was according to God's sovereign plan. And everything God does is perfect and good. And the only thing that stands in my way from enjoying this person is not God's sovereignty. It's my sin. There's another thing very practical. And it's this. It's simple. Agree in the Lord. Where we have differences and difficulties, agree in the Lord. Isn't that what Paul tells Yodia and Syntyche? Agree in the Lord. It's interesting. He doesn't, they weren't dealing with theological issues. Otherwise, Paul would have corrected them. He doesn't tell them, uh, pick a side, so they're dealing with, you know, what was the color of the carpet type of issues. And he says, look, at, basically get, get over yourself and agree in the Lord. We, we may have differences, but at the end of the day, 
either let them go or cling to our common agreements and recognize that we're in Christ and that Christ is the bigger, the better, and the greater thing for us to agree upon. And other things and disagreements are very small. Notice what Paul writes to the church of Corinth. He says, for you are still of the flesh. That's usually not a commendation coming from Paul when he says you're in the flesh. He says, you are in the flesh for a while there is jealousy and strife among you. And we could say that jealousy, strife are, are issues that can separate that joy and that desire that we have to be with God's people. I just don't want to be there around God's people. And, and we have to say it that way. I, it's not, I don't want to be around that group. We have to say, I don't want to be around those that are united to Christ by faith, by grace, just as I am. I think if we said it that way, that might change how we think about it. So Paul says, this jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? In other words, you're not behaving according to what a person that is born again should be behaving like. You're not, you're not acting as if you are regenerated. Now Moses chose this life because God had called him. God had called him out of darkness, given given him these desires. He deals with difficult people. He prays for difficult people. Which means that it was a choice. I know know what you might be thinking. Where, Where do we draw the line with difficult people. Well, Scripture gives us instructions on that. We know that. If you warn a divisive person once and then twice, then have nothing to do with them. If one doesn't follow the instructions of Paul, that you are to cast him aside as an unbeliever, Scripture tells us those things. But usually those aren't the the way we deal with things. So how do we deal with it? Where do we draw the line? Well, I, I think Moses gives us instruction on that as well. When Moses is on Mount Sinai and he recognizes and hears that there's rebellion going on, he actually comes down and intercedes for God's people on their behalf, even though he's angry. But the story doesn't end there. So here's the question. Where do I draw that line? Well, we draw it in the same place Moses did. We read in Exodus 32, in verse 25, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So I know what you're thinking. Hold on. Are you saying we're to kill those that have chosen to reject Christ? In a sense, yes. 
The old covenant was a theocracy where you were given two tables of the law, the, the, the table of the law to worship God and the table of the law to, to love your neighbor. And then you were given judicial commandments on how to execute that. And that was handed over to the people of God. Well, we're no longer under that system. That has been given into the hands of the civil magistrate. If someone commits murder, then the civil magistrate has the right to put them to death. If someone steals, the civil magistrate has the right to jail them or give them fines. That is not given to the church of the new covenant. But in a sense, it is. And we have to recognize this. Because Jesus says this, after you have brought them before the church, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is for the church to declare, because the church has been given the keys, is this, is we can no longer trust your confession of faith. Excommunication is no longer to receive the communion is a sign of being cast out and death. The church does this so for the purpose that one may turn to Christ in repentance. Paul says, hand them over to Satan. Why? Because we as a church, not a single individual, we as a church, because you're unrepentant, because of your sin, can no longer trust that you are a Christian. That's not saying that we know what's in their heart and whether this is just temporary backsliding, they're going to turn around. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is you treat them as though they have been executed. They are spiritually dead. They are now in need of a new birth to be born again. So we draw the same line that Moses drew. We just don't physically kill them. In a sense, though, it is a spiritual death. There's also something else just in general. We have to be willing and must be willing to put ourselves in a place of where this happens oftentimes over and over again. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, most commentators note that what, what Peter is doing is he's thinking of a really big number that's going to impress the Lord. If I forgive him this many times, that's like the, that's really the height of grace. And Christ responds, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Just in regular relationships, we have to recognize and be willing that relationships can be messy, but there's always forgiveness, and it's wonderful and can be beautiful. Even if it takes 77 times, you have won your brother over, and what a day of rejoicing that will be. So how do we cultivate this now? Back with grace and the grace of God is we must continually remind ourselves of the gospel that has saved us, that we are forgiven, that we are sinful, that we have not arrived, 
nor has anyone else. And we're in this process together. And we can only encourage one another and spur one another onto good works, as we are told in Hebrews, if we're together. And if you desire sanctification, if you desire to go in Christ, then your desire has to be to be with God's people. Because you will not grow in sanctification apart from God's people. And it could be, maybe it's possible, that that person that bothers you is the key to your sanctification. And it could be that you're the person that bothers them that's the key to their sanctification. It also means, though, as we cultivate this, we have to be very intentional to prioritize the gathering of the saints, is that when it is possible, we do it. That it's not only a priority to gather on the Lord's Day, but it is just a priority to gather with the saints, to encourage one another and to spur one another on to good works. Very practically, as we saw with Moses, we pray for others. We check on others. We intentionally try to interact with those outside of our normal association. This is the desire that God puts in our hearts when we come to Christ for God's people. And it is a desire, much like our faith, that we are called to cultivate and we are called to grow in. And it's, it's inseparable from actually our sanctification, our growth in the faith, and our relationship with Christ himself. So let us plead with God for his grace and mercy that that would be the desire of our heart. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the mercy that you have upon us as you have called us out to be Christ's people, to be his disciples, we are in need of your help, that we would desire to be with one another, that we would love one another, that we would pray for one another and encourage one another, that, Father, we would forgive one another and be patient with one another. We cannot do this apart from your grace to us. And so we pray that, Father, your rich grace, your boundless grace would be upon us even this evening. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would stand.